chance, one life, one take. Little room for mistake. Who do you Welcome to the Dead Funny Dead Serious Podcast. This is the 30 End of Life Doulas in 30 Days series. My name is Mitzi and I am your host today. And our end of life doula that is joining us today is Emily Voss. And she is coming from Reinforcing Wishes is her business. And the uh, she has the best website name ever. It's nativedeathdiva.com. So yeah. Welcome, Emily. Well, thank you so much. We are going to dive right in to why you started in this business. Yes. Well, I want to take the time um, to introduce myself as an Lenape and Chahatha descendant from the Oklahoma. And I'm currently residing on the unceded lands here in the Florida panhandle of the Muscogee and the Creek Nations. I actually have a firm belief that I was raised and groomed into this. However, I did not find it the professional path until about four years ago. And I worked in my career in mental health as I supported my active duty husband and supported his career as we traveled the world. And so now that we're preparing for his retirement, it was really the time for me to start my business in something that's just been seated in my heart since grad school. I loved my death and dying classes in grad school. He hated them. I wanted, <laughs> he did not want to hear about anything I was writing or talking about. And that was almost 20 years ago. I, I, I even thought about changing. I was like the last three months of grad school and I thought about changing to palliative care. But at that time, you had to be an RN to go into palliative care. And so I was ready to start my family and end my academic <laughs> career. Right. So I stayed within the mental health arena and I've worked in various positions in five, six different states in the last 18, 20 years. And so I am super excited to be helping pioneer in some ways, you know, the death of doula term is a little bit more trendy and it feels like pioneering the professionalism part of it. I bring a lot um, as far as I grew up in death's shadow is what I tell people. So it's a very natural transition for me. That's a beautiful term uh, that I haven't heard yet growing up in death's shadow. Yes. Well, there's a lot of trauma in there too, but <laughs> it does help to understand how I got here. My entire perspective on death is different than mainstream America. I mean, even before 2020, we were really doing death wrong in so many ways. And then I grew up biculturally, so I was really blessed with the experience. It didn't feel like a blessing back then. Let me be clear on that. Looking back as an educated, mature person, <laughs> I can see the blessings that came from seeing the wide spectrum of death culture, the many different ways that people choose to grieve. It's been a, a wonderful thing to come and put together and to see, right? Like after 2020, people are finally ready to talk about this. It, it forced so many people to have discussions that are uncomfortable. And so I'm, I'm here as one of those conversation starters. Yeah, you're here for it. And so now your husband is looking at retiring from the military? Yes, well... He's he's uh, 24 years in, so he's had a few opportunities to retire, and he keeps reenlisting. But we are we're getting closer <laughs> to the retirement countdown. He's active duty in the Navy, so 
I'm looking forward to that season of life that we're entering into. What would that look like uh, if you want to answer when he's retired and you being um, a death worker? Yes. So we've actually, I've organically always worked as a death worker when we consider my natural membership into the military community. Because in the military community, we have a lot of traumatic death, unexpected death, whether that's helping the families that we've been stationed alongside and processing the illnesses that they couldn't go home to support or when they couldn't travel home for funerals because we were stationed overseas or on an island. Uh, a lot of families have a hard time with this. And so I naturally filled that void in helping families, helping them find the resources in our community that they could access to give them that support and really just holding that safe space for them. Right. And so when he retires, the idea has always been that he will come home and be the active duty parent and I will deploy and I will get to travel the country um, going into our first nations and doing workshops and events and helping educate on financial literacy when it comes to funeral and end of life issues, helping decolonize burial rites and ceremony, and just really helping our First Nations have these tough conversations because we have a lot of generational trauma, but the idea is that we're going to tap into those generational resiliences and start having these tough conversations and helping marginalized communities all over. But primarily, I tend to work within the military community and within the indigenous community. So even though I'm open to working with whoever finds me, um, that seems to be where most of, of my clients are coming from right now. And, and both of those are just such important spaces. I, and I love that you're, you're going to be ready to deploy into, into this work. <laughs> the, kids, the kids understand those terms, so we're just going to roll with it um, because <laughs> it'll be new for them to have dad home. And plus, he gets the teenagers. I'm I'm gonna roll out while he handles the teenagers. Okay, well that you're that makes you the winner on on this deployment. <laughs> it was all well planned. <laughs> Very smart. Those are just two really important segments of our population to be working with, and and just a different language um, of working with the shadow, right? Of of death. I know that you went to graduate school and you're in mental health. What else, uh, any trainings or background that it was influential? Sure. Well, actually, I think as far as my education, so I got my bachelor's out of Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, and I had sociology. And then I did my master's in human relations, which is a counseling emphasis out of OU. And um, during that time, I specifically sought out hospice and the Department of Mental Health to do my internship work through. And because when I came out of that, I was a court-appointed drug and alcohol therapist. So my entire career, mental health career, has always dealt with things like overdose, suicide, very traumatic death, and supporting grievers after they've had this experience of a, of a traumatic death in their life. And so that is really just been a cornerstone that I didn't go looking for, but it was just well established throughout my career. And then when we were in Hawaii, I was a case manager for the chronically homeless, which that's an entirely different segment of the population too. There's a lot 
of trauma and when we're looking at someone who hasn't been in a facility in 10 or 15 years or how to access to the proper medical care. And so just kind of life experience, if you will, is what's there. And then growing up in the indigenous community, it's very natural for us to love our dying into and through their death. Children are a part of it. I grew up being a part of it. When I actually, um, I went through the Going With Grace um, certification program, and it was very um, telling that when I went through and they were having these conversations about when was the first time you experienced death? When was your first funeral? I couldn't answer those questions. I didn't remember. I had always been a part of it. I had firsts like, I remember the first time I washed a body. I remember the first time I dressed a body. I remember the first time I did makeup. I remember the first time I handled the funeral director on my own so that the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents could handle what they needed to handle. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I remembered all of these firsts that I had well before I was 20 that many of my peers had never even begun to consider experiencing. So again, life experience personally and professionally um, has really situated me with a little bit more credentials than what could come from a certification program. Now, I still loved the thoroughness of the program that I went through. And I think it was really precious to sit with peers and have these conversations and to also gently remind some peers, I love that this seed has been planted in you to do this work, but it's irresponsible to walk into this space if we haven't considered lots of other things. So that's yeah. it's one of the giftings that as traumatic as it, it was for me growing up in some of these situations, because nobody took the time to process with it, trust me with it process it with me. But as I educated myself, right, as I did, you know, because I was on a course to be an LMFT at one point, you know, I, you have to do your own work, right, to be a helper. And so just um, as I sought out, I've always been in the helping field. So I've naturally always sought out all of that self awareness. <laughs> and I've always had my own therapist to call me out on things. Uh, so yeah. Loving our own therapists here in good company. Really important when people have this seed planted, that there is just so much education that you have to give to yourself just respectfully. We have a lot of work to do to make sure that we avoid some common projections and common uh, things that can happen when we're in this um, very special space of, of end of life care. On that note, uh, we're going to move into a little bit of the challenges. Since this has just been this kind of rolling career for you, what are the challenges that you've come across on saying that you're an end-of-life worker? First of all, everybody just, they don't know how to respond, right? When I say that I'm a death worker, and I just, it just rolls off of the tongue so easy for me. And they're like, wait, what? Did I, did I hear that correctly? Or they see all this personality and this color and they're like, what? Why? Um, <laughs> so I think that that's the first thing is people don't understand it. And then, however, when I say it to a griever and they're like, what is that? Right. They're curious. They're in, 
constantly curious. And I share with them, I'm like, hey, I come in and I help the families have those really uncomfortable conversations. I help the families at the time of transitioning. I help families advocate for what a good death looks like. We talk about that. We advocate for that. If you need me to help bring you home from the hospital because that's where you want to die, that's what I do, right? And so, and, or maybe you want me to come in and help you with your survivor's checklist because when we're struggling to get air in our lungs, how in the world can we get through all of this logistical tape? And especially when things like checking the mail now becomes a trigger for our sadness. And so grievers are completely in awe and amazed and just, I wish I would have had you. I wish I would have known about you. And so the idea is, you know, most of my work is done in the crisis of death as it's happening or after helping the grievers. Ideally, everyone in the end of life profession, we want to get ahead of that. That's probably a good five years away, right? Until that's a norm. Right now, we're doing a lot of education and a lot of advocacy. Eventually, we're going to get ahead of it and people are going to be able to contact us at diagnosis. Medical professionals are loving. I've been making a lot of connections within the medical profession and they're like, where have you been? And I'm like, reinforcements are here because they don't, they don't know what to do when they give a diagnosis and an exit window, other than to say, do you have clergy? Do you have, you know, they don't know what to do. And so the end of life profession is really here to help bridge that gap. And it is a super exciting time to, to be a part of that in helping professionals connect. And then also helping the community have that safety net. Because they have questions, but they, they don't know what their questions are. And society has kind of taught them, like, don't talk like that. Let's be hopeful. Let's, and it's like, let's stop acting like we know somebody who's gotten out of this life alive. Right? Like, I love that. <laughs> let's, let's stop acting like that. Just stop acting like that. I'm just going to walk down the street and say that no, this afternoon. Yeah. Stop acting like you know somebody. I mean, just wrapping everything that you just said together, you know, you started with, you, you say, I'm a death worker and people's faces are like, what? Those are the people. Anyone, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, what am I listening to? Why is that happening? You talk to anybody that has that. The whole point is that you want somebody like Emily or any of these end of life doulas to be on your team because they can hold that space because their face doesn't make that <laughs> Uh, right? It's all of that. We want someone <laughs> that can have a little bit of a vessel uh, to be able to hold you while you're you're having that conversation, while you're making these plans and, and going through this this grief. It's I mean, it, that just nailed it. And I am just going to walk down the street this week and say, like, don't act like that. You know, someone that got out of this life alive. Okay. See you later. <laughs> I'll record that for, for YouTube as well. Just kidding. I won't do that. Those are challenges, education, but I love that you're thinking in five years uh, that people will, will know this. Is that your hope? We're going to just roll into hopes here. <laughs> I, w I would love if it happened so much sooner than that. And that is why I've been working really hard to develop relationships within the medical profession, right? Because medicine by default, they see death as a failure. 
in so many ways. And so that's why we have a late turnover into hospice. That's why, you know, a lot of hospitals are backed by faith-based religions. And when they bring in the clergy, we're praying for a miracle. We're all dying. Let's stop and remember that. (laughs) So, but it is, it has been so refreshing as I have fully focused on this and connecting with the doctors and the medical professionals, nurse practitioners and hospitalists, they know, right? They know, but they don't know who to turn the families over to. The social workers in the hospital aren't necessarily equipped. They're drained. They have a high turnover rate too. And so when you have a group of professionals coming into the field saying, we're comfortable talking about death, not only are we comfortable talking about it, we're going to tell you, you have options and choices in dying. And how about this? And, and it's just, it's mind blowing. But the impression I've gotten from the medical professional professions is they are just so relieved to have backup, to have those reinforcements coming in because they're in medicine because they have kind, caring, helping hearts too. But they're just in a different part of this and they they're not naturally equipped for it and they've been missing this helping peer and so they're excited to know that we're coming and that we're ready to have these conversations i love your hopes (laughs) your hopes and dreams bring it back around to i know that you have a it's a workbook yes so um it hasn't been released yet we're still working on it it's called the comfort care workbook and it's something to help families start the process of how can we care for our dying? When someone is dealing with a terminal diagnosis, it's something that they can work through and really think about what were the things that comforted them in this life? And what are the things that are going to comfort them in their death? It's also going to be a tangible thing that our future grievers will have after death to remind themselves after communication was lost they still were able to honor the wishes of their beloved. They were able to do the things that were reassuring and comforting. And they are able to more confidently walk into that space of being a griever. So I throw around the terms quite a bit, like celebrating our mortality and future courses and future grievers. And that's hard for some ears to hear, but we're working on changing that narrative. Um, But the hope is not a lot of people are really stopping to look at the social and emotional side of death and how do we prepare for it? If we know it's coming, if we are blessed with the luxury of our exit window, there really is some precious work that we can get done that's going to uncomplicate some of the grief of the family that we leave. And so that's really where my heart is, is helping people enjoy their death. And I know that sounds really weird, (laughs) but so many death anxieties are about leaving their loved ones. It's about leaving this chaos. Well, yeah, there's death planners out there, which you need kind of some tweaking too, but we even need to come a step forward and look at comfort care and having some tough conversations. Um, I was blessed to work 
last year with the Conversation Project. They have some amazing free resources that um, I was able to help collaborate on to make sure that um, all voices were represented and that, you know, it, it really was amazing to work with that project. And so I always send that out too. Go get the conversation guides from the conversationproject.org. Download those. Those are a great way to start. And it's free. We got to love free. It's free. And they can find those links uh, through the Dead Funny Dead Serious website. We have all those links because the conversation project is amazing. And they really are. And I specifically um, did a lot of work with uh, caregiving for the medically fragile or terminally ill child. Um, because I've done work the last four years working with uh, children of active duty service members. And so lots of good conversations there to have with siblings who are losing a sibling. And it's a little different when we're losing a child, when we're preparing to lose a child. And I love that the Conversation Project took specific focus on handling that too. You're doing all the hard conversations, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Every level. You've given us so much to think about. I mean, I'm going to speak for myself. You've given me so much to think about. I just I want to continue this conversation at another time because I think that there's a lot of information in there that is just so useful to the public. Anyone that's listening that's in the end-of-life professions, I think interdisciplinary work is the way that it has to go. We're going to continue this on some level. Um, stay tuned to all of the social media. We're going to find Emily on Instagram and on her website, and you're going to all get in line for that workbook, you know, doing it with your family or, or clients' families. I think that's important, having all the resources that we possibly can. Yeah, so your website is nativedeathdiva.com, and all those links are going to be in the show notes. And as soon as you give me that link to the workbook, we will post that online because they should all have it. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And you are on Clubhouse. What is your Clubhouse name? Native Death Diva. Native Death Diva. Find her and follow her and jump in those rooms and have that conversation. I know I will. We haven't seen each other on there yet, I don't think, but we're going to and we're going to have conversations. (laughs) So you should follow both of us, be part of it. So thank you again, Emily. Yes, of course. Thanks, all the listeners uh, of this podcast, everybody watching us on YouTube. It would mean the world to us if you like this, share this, leave a review, any one of those things, all those things. If you're so inclined, that would be awesome. And then when you do that, hop on over to TikTok and Instagram and follow us there. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.